Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove where we are making old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, also known as the R in OSR, and this evening we have the distinct pleasure of having a return guest on the show. Uh, he is one of the best minds out there when it comes to thinking about RPG combat tactically, both from a player perspective and a Game Master perspective. He's the author of The Monsters Know What They're Doing and the recently released How to Defend Your Lair. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome back to Rolling Bones, Mr. Keith Amen. Keith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's This is such an interesting and important topic, but it's one that so few people actually talk about, so any chance to actually have discussions about taking a like tactical approach to RPG combat and what that means both from the GM and the player perspective is something that I really value. So I, I'm glad that we're able to, to do this tonight and talk about these, uh, these topics here. Awesome. <laughs> so uh, as we were talking about before we uh, jumped on here tonight, last time you were on the show, uh, the monsters know what they were doing, or the monsters know what they're doing. Was a blog, and was about to be released as a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been quite a while. You've actually released two other books between uh, the monsters know what they're doing and and this current one. So uh, mm-hmm. to to play a little bit catch up here, let's talk a little bit about those other books that that came out between. Uh, The Monsters Know What They're Doing in this one, just to give people kind of a a full overview of what you have to offer out there. Sure. Well, it's it's kind of funny because um, I I noticed uh, somewhere along the line that um, on Amazon and and, uh, Bookshop and other places, uh, they were starting to... Uh, they were starting to number the books like they're part of a series, mm-hmm. which in a sense, I suppose they are, except that if if I had originally been thinking about numbering them as a series, I might have released them in a different order. Um, because what we have is The Monsters Know, the original book, and then Live to Tell the Tale, Combat Tactics for Player Characters, which is my uh, my apology of action to all the players who got clobbered by dms who started using tactics they weren't ready for um and then uh i released the third book chronologically 
which in spirit is the direct sequel to The Monsters Know, and that's more Monsters Know What They're Doing, which contains the monsters from Volo's Guide to Monsters and Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. And that came out at the beginning of this year. And then just last week, um, my fourth book, How to Defend Your Lair, came out. And uh, I don't I don't really think of these books as being sequential in any particular way, um, except for more monsters coming after the monsters know. But as far as my publisher and the bookstores are concerned, they're numbers one, two, three, and four. So <laughs> um, I guess I guess series have cachet. So yeah. Has your publisher had any discussions with you about any kind of like omnibus format now that it's kind of been turned into a series? Um, no, we haven't talked about that. And uh, to be honest, with 1D&D and the, the promised changes uh, and updates coming to 5th edition in 2024, and the amount of time it takes to get a trade book from manuscript to publication, um, it's kind of right now a bad time to even be thinking about releasing revised editions because those of us outside Wizards of the Coast just have absolutely no idea what's coming. And, you know, we don't, I don't want to write a book that's going to be obsolete by the time it drops. That actually almost happened with more monsters. Um, I did not know there was going to be a Monsters of the Multiverse until I had already returned the third proof of more <laughs> monsters. Yep. At that point, there's absolutely nothing I can do about the content of that book. So um, when Monsters the Multiverse was released uh, in a standalone edition, as opposed to being part of that, that box set, I quickly went to the blog and wrote uh, updates of all of the monsters whose tactics might have been significantly affected by the changes in Monsters of the Multiverse. And there were some of those. Um, it was it was surprisingly nice how much of more monsters still held up. Uh, a very, very large amount of that still held up. There were some minor changes. Some of them were pretty much just cosmetic. Some of them were only subtractive like there were some things that you could have done before that you couldn't do with monsters of the multiverse and so out of a list of six different things that a monster might do maybe uh you lost two of them and you just take them out of the uh priority order but there were a handful that were changed completely and so anyone who's got more monsters or is thinking of buying more monsters and is using it with Monsters the Multiverse, uh, just go to themonstersknow.com, and in the menu, there's a uh, Monsters the Multiverse updates uh, item in the menu, and that will take you to uh, all of my articles that deal with the, the changes that that book wrought. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and this has been a resource that a lot of people have come to rely very heavily on. Uh, in my chat here, uh, Crafty Matt uh, says that it's The Monsters Know is one of the first books that he recommends to any new uh, game master. And he also 
and this is an interesting point that I kind of want your comment on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crafty says that there is no need to apologize for uh, what you did to the players in the monsters. No, because <laughs> there's, and I agree with him on this. There's an aspect of intelligent monsters that your players have to go up against. They're not just going to stand there and essentially trade punches if that's mm-hmm. not what the monster would do based on the information that we have uh, on them from you know the, the published material. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is creating a more rewarding and more challenging game where the players then have to figure out the tactics that the monster is using, how they're thinking, and then kind of dismantle them. Encounter them, yeah. yeah. So I, yeah. I, and I, I, I disagree with that only slightly. And the reason is that I read my mail and I got messages <laughs> from DMs who were saying, uh, oh, wow, your stuff is awesome. I used this and I killed my entire player's party. And I'm like, that's not what I was going for. I was, I was not trying to write a TPK manual. What I was trying to do was what you just said, yeah. you know, give players an appropriate challenge that they can defeat but have to work to defeat and have to think to defeat um, so that the success is more satisfying and also to bring uh, a greater sense of um, presence and flavor and, and you know, really feeling like you're there and this is an intelligent entity that you're going up against. I was, I was not trying to achieve player wipes uh, or party wipes. And um, so that was the whole reason why I wrote Live to Tell the Tale in the first place, mm-hmm. which began as a self-published ebook that I was selling through my blog. And when I had the opportunity to um, have it republished by Saga Press, um, I revised and expanded it, it sig- expanded it significantly um, and uh tried to make it more useful in a, in a wider variety of ways for players. And, um, you know, that, that is, and that is a book also that, that I would like to, uh, bring some revisions to, because I think I could have, uh, maybe written it a little better as a teaching tool. I mean, I think it's, I think it's good as it stands. Um, but I think maybe, uh, if I were doing it today, I would take the sample battles and put a little more, um, put a little more of a. Here are some things you might do in this situation. What do you think the player should actually choose? And then, like you know, go through some of the reasoning like that. Make it a little more uh, Socratic, mm-hmm. yeah. as opposed to uh, just like, as opposed to just demonstrating what the good tactics look like. Like you know, give people a chance to think about it a little bit more. And maybe after one D&D comes out, I'll have the opportunity to revise it that way, which is something I would like very much to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Jonathan Rock in chat here makes a good point. Uh, Questing Beast released a video today talking about the uh, the DM gap in 5e and how it looks like there's kind of a, a shortage of DMs running 5e. Um, and this is something we actually talked a little bit about in your first appearance, which I know was years ago, but I think the problem presented in 5e that I really think 1D&D needs to prioritize fixing 
is the information that the dungeon master needs to know to run effective tactical combat and to make full use of uh, the, the systems that are present in the game to run combats that are challenging and interesting. Uh, they need to be front and center and not hidden in various weird mm. uh, esoteric places that a lot of GMs just won't look because they don't know to look there. I have heard similar critiques from people uh, just about the organization of the Dungeon Master's Guide in general um, and uh, and about what it ought to include. Um, I personally don't have a lot of problems with that. But I think a lot of that, in my case, has to do with... Um, I don't know the way the way I use books like that and the way I just kind of um establish associations so I know where to find things like for example all of the things that I might need to refer to on the fly in a game I know that those are within a few pages of page 249 I know they're all in chapter 8 I just think of chapter 8 as um, if I need to know something mid-game, I go to chapter 8. Mm. And usually I go to page 249 and then just flip forward or backward until I find the thing I need, and it's right there for me. Um, I know that chapter 9 has action options in it, like uh, overrun and disarm and climb onto a bigger creature. I know that the encounter building guidelines are in chapter 3. I know all the treasure and magic item stuff is in chapter 7. And so I just go straight to those places, and... I, I know to do that because I, I've like established that that geography in my brain. Yeah. I don't need to think about where to go. I know where to go. Um, I don't need to know the exact page number to know that if I flip to these chapters, I'm going to be in the right neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yes, I, I have heard a lot of people say that that one of the things 5e could really use is a uh, reimagining of the DMG. And I... I, I genuinely expect, I am confident that we're actually going to see that. I have no inside knowledge of it, but just, you know, based on things that have trickled out through people that I do trust, um, I, I'm i pretty sure we will see something like that. Hmm. And uh, Crafty Matt has another question in chat here. Uh, have you considered the possibility of doing something similar to the monsters? No, but focused on uh, other systems, like say one for Pathfinder or one for uh, Old School Essentials, or you know something like that. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> and I will tell you. No, I'll tell you exactly why. It's 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 this simple. Um, I have a trade publisher. Yeah, I, I work through an imprint of Simon and Schuster, Saga Press. And if I come to them and say, hey, I have an idea for a book that is about Pathfinder, they're going to say, that's very nice. Find someone to publish it, because we're not going to. D&D is big enough that a publisher like Saga Press will publish books aimed at that audience of players. The Even Pathfinder 
which is, I, I believe, number... I think either Pathfinder or Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. is number two in the number of people who... Actually, I just looked this up earlier today, and I have it in Notepad. Uh, let me... Why am I speculating on this? Yeah. So, number one is D&D. Number two is Call of Cthulhu. Number three is Pathfinder. Uh, then you have Vampire in the Other World of Darkness games. Mm-hmm. Um, then the... Powered by the Apocalypse uh, games, Dungeon World, then Star Wars RPG, and then everything else. Gotcha. Um, so Call of Cthulhu is number two. If I if I go to the publisher and say, hey, I'm going to write something like this, but for p- people who play Call of Cthulhu, there's not going to be any interest. Only D&D has a big enough audience to appeal to a trade publisher in that way. So either I write about D&D or I write about all role-playing games in general, or I do a hybrid of that, like I did in How to Defend Your Lair, where all of the examples are taken from D&D 5e, and I talk about D&D 5e mechanics in it, Mm. but the principles are broadly applicable to just about any system you want to play in, Um, aside from, I don't know, Honey Heist or something like that. But... um, But if I had said, I'm going to write something just for Star Wars or just for Cypher System, Pathfinder, even Call of Cthulhu, it's it's not going to fly. That's the publishing industry. Something like that I would have to publish on my own, and um, it probably just would not give me the same bang for the buck. Right. Yeah, and that's understandable. But what I will say, uh, to, to Crafty's point... Any game that has the same monsters, like, I'll I'll use Old School Essentials because I'm uh, preparing an Old School Essentials campaign right now. It has a lot of the same monsters as 5e just because of the nature of it being a retro clone of uh, Mm -hmm. Basic Expert D&D. Those tactics that you list, while the mechanics might not be necessarily one-for-one similar it's the same monster so those tactics should still be kind of broadly applicable the orcs in ose can behave in the same way that you would have them behave in the monsters know what they're doing so i still think even if you never run 5e if you're running any kind of medieval fantasy game it's worth reading the book just to get an understanding of kind of the the inner workings of these creatures minds yes and no um i will say Anyone who finds value in what I do, who wants to try applying it to a different system like OSR or Pathfinder or some sort of thing, Mm. can just take the same approach I do and think systematically about what does each line in this creature's stat block say about how it might function given this particular set of game rules the 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 method of thinking you can apply to anything but some monsters have changed in some pretty significant ways and and just to seize on a simple example um goblins the very first monster that most D&D 5e players encounter because of the Lost Minds of Fandelver. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first monster that is in the Monsters Know, they're on the cover, Goblins. If you go back and look at the AD&D Monster Manual, at what Goblins are, 
they are not the slippery little hit-and-run attackers that they are in 5e. They're basically just mooks who like to take slaves. Hmm. I mean, I'm glad they got away from that, but, um, you know, and, and made goblins more interesting, because I think the, the 5e iteration of goblins is way more interesting than that. Um, but, uh, yeah, some, some monsters have changed fairly significantly in their portrayal, in their abilities, um, and that's, that's not even getting into the things that uh, people have uh, tried to do in the last several years to um, move the game away from some of the pernicious stereotypes that had kind of infected it in the earliest years. Um, there, you know, it, it's... Um, now, you can, you can certainly um, adopt the new visions of the goblin and these other monsters and homebrew, you know, use homebrew to port that back into AD&D. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can play the thought experiment of what would a 5e goblin look like using AD&D rules. I think that would be a lot of fun Yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're still an AD&D player. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there are some differences there. Yeah, and, and one thing that chat here is um, agreeing with you on is a lot of the people who have read this book but run primarily in other systems mostly use it to get to thinking about monsters in a way that makes for mm -hmm. good encounters. And rather than kind of taking specifics if they're not running 5e, it's more uh, kind of reminding themselves how to think tactically and how to put themselves in the headspace of the, the monster. So... Mm -hmm. uh, for that, I, I also think that it's a it's a good resource. So there there's that. Those of you who are uh, mulling over a potential purchase of Keith's books. Now, I do want to get into uh, this current book, How to Defend Your Lair, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. The fact that in RPG worlds, there is this uh, hole in the ground where someone has placed treasure and mm -hmm. traps to protect that treasure ostensibly, but there's also monsters hanging around in there. All of that has reasoning behind it, and I feel like that's one of the main selling points of how to defend your lair is understanding what someone might find worth defending the reasons why they might find it being worth defending and then how to go about effectively defending a layer or stronghold to protect those things that are actually precious to mm -hmm. uh, the, the GM and the GM's kind of NPCs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like, like when you're talking about the putting in the treasure and then putting in the traps to protect the treasure, it's always worth asking, um, when somebody put these traps in, because somebody had to do it, um, what were they thinking? Like, who did they think they were placing these traps to stop? Why did they think this particular trap in this particular location would be effective at doing that? Why did they choose this trap over a different trap? Um, and, and 
one of the things I mention in the book is that the there is a long tradition in D&D and I'm sure in other role-playing games of choosing the villain, drawing the map, populating the map with minions or other creatures, wandering maybe wandering monsters, um, sprinkling in a few traps, um, and then decide, and then choosing the treasure and deciding where to put it, which is a suitable way, I suppose, to generate a random dungeon on the fly. But if you actually have a villain with motivations and with treasure worth taking, that villain is going to be primarily interested in protecting its assets and its treasure. And it's going to construct its lair in such a way to do that. And so what I'm suggesting is that you begin with the villain and whatever the villain is trying to protect, which may be treasure, may be information, may just be uh, the villain's own life. I call these the three L's, loot, lives, and lore. Mm -hmm. um, and then everything else in the lair the other creatures, the traps, the architecture is all going to be built with that purpose in mind to create a place where the villain can effectively carry out whatever activities it's engaging in and protect those assets from intruders. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, um, that's the central idea around which everything else in the book is built. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and again, these are things a lot of people should think about but don't necessarily think about. Um, a, a lot of times when people set up their dungeons or set up their, uh, their bad guy's lair, it turns into kind of a... Uh, it's almost like the haunted mansion at Disney World, only... You have to fight things occasionally. <laughs> so you go into a room and uh, this thing pops up. This this challenge mm -hmm. pops up and you have to deal with it. You have to fight it. Then you go into another room and another yeah. thing pops up. There's not really given... When you're on the Haunted Mansion, you're not thinking about, hey, why is... Uh, you know, wh why are those <laughs> uh, busts in the graveyard singing? Who who decided to enchant that? To ma yeah. You don't think about that because you're on an amusement park. Right? in that portrait watching me. Yeah. Yeah, like, where did that come from? How did that help anyone? But, again, this is not, um, this isn't the Haunted Mansion or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, whatever dark ride at whatever amusement park. Because of the nature of the game that we're playing here, a role-playing game, these things were done for a reason and have, you know, like, gotten this way for a reason. So understanding that yeah. reason and making it practical to the the goal of your enemy is I, I, something that really every dungeon master should take another look at when it comes to their dungeon designs. And I have always, I mean, even even back when I was eighteen years old, and quite honestly, didn't know how to think about this stuff. 
I have always been a little bit obsessed with cause and effect in RPGs. Um, and with the idea that the world you are playing in is a living place full of other creatures that have their own business that they go about when the PCs aren't around. Things keep happening. They don't only happen because the PCs are looking. Monsters are not waiting around in rooms for the PCs to show up. They've got stuff to do. And they know things. They know things that the PCs don't know. The PCs know things that they don't know. And that's an interesting imbalance to explore the implications of. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Back in the day, in in Dragon Magazine, there was this series of articles, um, The Ecology of the Purple Worm, The Ecology of the Beholder, The Ecology of the Mind Flayer, and it was all about how all of these monsters fit into some kind of niche in the setting. And um, I wouldn't say those were a direct influence on me, but they were a very, very strong indirect influence influence on me uh the fact that they existed is very consistent with the approach that i always take i always want my my dnd settings to feel very alive very lived in i want them to feel real and i know that's i know that that desire comes in for some mockery from people who are like, this is a fantasy world. Anything can happen. Dragons fly. You know, magic exists. And I'm like, yes, but everything that is not explicitly fantastic should work the same way it does in the real world. Fantasy is not an excuse for just letting any old thing happen with no explanation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's not an excuse for not thinking about how something might have come to pass. Yeah. Um, it's, it's taking a world and saying, there can be awe-inspiring things in here, wild, heroic things, implausible things, but they still all happen for a reason. And when the gods are not meddling and and wizards are not meddling and and you don't have any supernatural forces working on this patch of the world then it reverts to normal physics and biology and chemistry mm. and and causality yeah um and so um so for me i i really like anchored fantasy as opposed to anything goes fantasy. Right. Um, and and that's how I always try to... That's that's the uh, mentality that I bring to everything I write and, and every game I run. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to, to answer uh, Max in chat here, Max from Legion of Myth, um, I don't think what we're saying here is that every single skeleton needs to have like a, an origin story of how they got there. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Stuff like he mentioned specifically a carrion crawler and a skeleton. Um, skeletons, 
you know, especially if it's something that's been sufficiently buried for a long period of time, anything that went down there before you or anything that died down there, it, it makes sense for a skeleton to be down there. And then a carrion crawler, uh, they're subterranean and they also look for dead things to eat. So, you know, if, if this is something where other adventurers have gone in or, uh, you know, someone has died there recently, yeah, carrion crawler could just be there because... Uh-huh. It, yeah. it, it makes sense based on what that thing is, that it would be there. I tend to treat monstrosities as um, uh, evolved creatures. I, I tend to operate on the assumption that a monstrosity is an evolved creature, just like an animal, with the exception that um, it's it's encountered very rarely. Or it has been, uh, it's part of a population that has been magically or divinely influenced in some way um, before natural selection kicked in again. And, um, and so, unless a monstrosity is one of a kind, it has to have some way to sustain itself. It has to have some way to reproduce itself. And um, when you have sustenance and reproduction, you have evolution. And so any given creature is is going to have evolved to survive in its niche. Hmm. In it, sorry, accidentally <laughs> bumped the mute button there. Um, to survive in its niche. Mm-hmm. And um, even if it's weird, even if it's unnatural or or unusually belligerent um a monster is just an animal that's weirder and scarier yeah for the most part now when you get into uh when you get into other creature types you know then you've got uh different forces working but monstrosities are basically just something went a little haywire somewhere and so, but so, they want they want their food, they want their territory, and they don't care about much else. So what I'm hearing here is, let's use the example of the rust monster, and I think this is something that's gonna gonna scare some players <laughs> out there. Um, rust monsters are ridiculous. Yes. Let's just lay that out right now. <laughs> rust monsters were originally created specifically to punish fighters who put on too much armor. Yeah. It was just a jerk move by one of those original dungeon masters. Mm-hmm. That is why rust monsters exist. So you really have to like reverse engineer a reason why they could even possibly exist. Um to uh to to justify putting them in the game, but But yeah, if you are playing a game where you have rust monsters and those rust monsters have to eat metal to survive, essentially, it would make sense that almost any buried treasure room is going to be infested with them. Oh, not necessarily, because how much buried treasure is actually iron? If it's all copper and silver and gold, they're not going to care. Yeah, fair enough. They want iron. Yep. Um, now, to find them in an iron mine would be absolutely plausible. Yeah. Um, find them, it, let's say you're running an Eberron campaign where you've actually got a little bit of industry 
rust monsters are going to infest the machinery. You know, um, a uh, uh, um, if you have a large armory or smithy in a kingdom, and the rust monsters come come in, you know, there you got. I've got a um, one of my sample layers, which I had a lot of fun with in how to defend your lair, is uh, an archfey named Greengrasp. He's a um, he's he's a fey dire troll. And he, you know, and, and I had the idea, like, he's got these four arms and they're always just kind of grasping because he's, he is the embodiment of avarice and he's got this opulent palace where he likes to show off his conspicuous consumption, but he's also completely paranoid, um, and has all his, his treasury in this very, very thick walled tower. Um, and his... And, and his greatest frustration in life is that somehow his fey domain got infested by Zorn. And the Zorn just, like, are burrowing around under his, uh, under his land mm-hmm. and getting into his corundum mines and eating up all the rubies and sapphires that he wants to have in his possession. Um, and this whole thing just drives him so crazy that while he could have, um, he probably could have more guards defending his realm than he does, he has to devote a chunk of his resources to stamping out the Zorn problem. And so he's got some dedicated units of Zorn hunters that you can encounter within his domain. Um, whose whose sole purpose is to hunt down Zorns and get rid of them, and and that is where you know that comes goes back to my original concept is what assets does your villain have? Mm-hmm. How does he? How does the villain defend those assets? Who are they defending those assets from? Greengrasp is not primarily concerned with defending his assets from adventurers. He doesn't have a problem with adventurers. He has problems with rivals and with Zorn. Mm-hmm. And so all of his security measures around his palace are geared toward preventing incursions from agents of other envious Archfey and Zorn. Mm-hmm. And so player characters, adventurers... Um, may actually have a little bit of an edge if they want to try to nick some of his stuff because they are not what he was primarily concerned about defending against. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... um, It's kind of the opposite tendency of GMs who just kind of set up the, the fun house or the haunted house dungeon. The ones who because they know the player's plan, they then kind of build their dungeon around, here's everything that I, uh, basically here's all the stuff that I know as the GM to kind of foil all of your typical shenanigans Mm -hmm. in a situation where it's pot or it's probable that whoever operates that dungeon or whoever, especially if it's a dungeon and it's ancient, they didn't know that your players, you know, relied very heavily on fire magic because they were dead thousands of years before your players right. showed up. 
So having your your dungeons and your layers kind of specifically geared towards these are the priorities of uh, the the figure who created this thing or the villain who created this thing. I, I think that's an interesting concept to, to play off of. Mm. Now you contrast uh, Green Grasp's palace with uh, the last layer in the book, the toughest one, the Lich's Crypt. Mm-hmm. Now the Lich is explicitly defending against not just adventurers but the player characters specifically right why because he's a lich and a lich is paranoid and brilliant and he figured out back when the pcs were level 11 that they were going to be a problem for him Mm -hmm. and he has already tried to infiltrate them and assassinate them he knows they're coming he is specifically trying to make sure that they cannot do anything to stop him. Mm-hmm. And so that is that is a very different approach that he takes from Green Grasp yeah. and, um, and one that is probably going to be more familiar to people accustomed to um, your typical D&D type dungeon. Yeah, and, and one of the mechanisms that you mentioned very early on in this book related towards that is the idea of spies and espionage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The and Again, this is something that I've overlooked in my campaigns, and I think a lot of people overlook. If you have this kind of big overarching bad guy who your your ultimate goal is, you know, the players are eventually going to run afoul of this guy, as soon as your players start to make names for themselves— the, the villain's agents should be, if not directly on their trail, at least asking questions about them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so for, for those who are interested, um, one of the things I talk about is how spies pretty much fall into two categories. Those who are solely responsible for passively gathering information and those who are responsible for actively gathering information about particular potential threats. So the spies in the first category are referred to in the craft as gray people. They are people you don't even notice. They're not important enough to notice. They're in the background. They don't stand out in any way. Um, The housekeeper at the inn, the beggar in the market square, People you just don't even pay attention to. Maybe you even try to avoid their gaze because their presence makes you a little uncomfortable. Um, But they are watching, they are listening, and they are reporting what they see and hear back to whoever is employing them. The second type, the the ones that actively gather information, they are charismatic, memorable, and good at working themselves into the good graces of the people they're spying on. And um, I I ran a uh, bust my lair game for some friends, and uh, I put them through the Aboleth lair, the Aboleth Grotto. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Ab- this Aboleth has has basically taken over an entire town. Managed to get all of them to come within one mile 
of this uh, cenote. It's based on the uh, cenotes of uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, uh, karst, karst sinkholes that have filled up with water. And, uh, and this one happens to have uh, underground conduits that lead all the way back to the ocean, mm. as some of the cenotes do. And uh, so, um, so because the Aboleth has gotten everyone to come within one mile, it has literally managed to mind control every single person in the entire village. Plus, there are a few uh, deep scions wandering around the, uh, the village in disguise, and these are the Aboleth's spies. Um, when my players came into the village and were and and most of the villagers like didn't really want to talk to them they were a little standoffish um but one of the deep scions disguised as a regular human came up to them and was friendly and i used some of these techniques of of um asking asking them a lot of questions about themselves and um mirroring their gestures and their ways of speaking and uh, the players bit so hard on that hook. They thought they had made a best friend hmm. until it became obvious that they hadn't. Right. This stuff works. It it works uncannily well. Hmm. Absolutely. And that's a situation where it helps to uh, know your players and know mm -hmm. the kinds of things that will get them to bite because i think every gm has had a uh, a situation where they introduced an npc with the idea that this will be someone who's friendly and the players hate them and ultimately <laughs> yeah they become an, an adversary or they introduce someone who's not supposed to become be obsessed with someone completely yeah. insignificant instead yeah yeah so once you've kind of figured out who your players are going to glom onto, uh having Someone like that in the employ of your uh, mm -hmm. your villain will uh, definitely set them up for a similar situation like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it really is interesting uh, the the ways in which kind of like the the psychology of the game and the way that your your villain would operate and the way that player characters operate and the psychology of the players at the table, where those things meet, where they conflict with each other. That's an interesting aspect of role-playing games in general that uh, mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people notice, but I don't know that a lot of people have words to describe them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say so too. Yeah, this... From what I've read so far, I'm about a quarter of the way through this book. It's it's this is a really good resource for anyone who's really looking to kind of level up their, um, you know, their particular dungeon design or layer design. And I'm glad that you give examples as well because a lot mm -hmm. of people can read text like this and say, okay, you know, I understand the idea. I'm not sure how to put that into practice. But the examples that you give in the book. Uh, do give people that impression of here are ways to employ various kind of means discussed in the book. So the, mm -hmm. having examples is always a, a a good thing for people, in my opinion. Yeah, and I worked with some very, very good map illustrators 
and um, gave them a lot of leeway in how they drew the maps. Um, I basically, for each layer, worked with a single illustrator and said, um, these are the things that the layer has to include. Um, here's sort of the general rough layout I'd like it to have. Um, and, and let the cartographers fill in a lot of the details and um, just got some absolutely incredible results from that. There were really only two layers where I pretty much worked out the entire layout of them on my own and gave them to the uh, illustrators and just said, do this. Um, there's a lot of the map makers in that book and uh, they really deserve uh, a lot of credit for their contributions. Um, I list them all uh, at the end of the book uh, with their URLs of their work. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'll give them a shout out anyway. Chloe Bolland, Dungeon Baker, Fernando Salvaterra, and uh, Reclusive Cartographer. Terrific folks to work with and um, just did some really beautiful, beautiful work. Mm-hmm. Another aspect of this that of this book that made me think about things a little bit differently is the the way you talk about traps. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of tropes associated with traps that come from the adventure genre or from like mm -hmm. pulp novels because they create very dramatic moments. This idea that you can turn around the corner and run into something that'll immediately uh, kill you if you're not careful. Yeah. Is a I jokingly thing. refer to those as Acme spring-loaded corridor blades. Yes. Yeah, the, they create kind of dramatic story moments, but when it when you switch your brain to, I have to set up defenses that are practical for me to uh, kind of coexist with in a dungeon, a lot of that right. stuff kind of falls apart. And I, I like the, the quotes that you put in about locks specifically, but this also applies to traps. Mostly they're there to delay people or deter them rather than mm -hmm. outright keep them out. Yeah. Um, and certainly rather than to maim or kill them. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, well, there, so I talked about the orientation of um, designing a lair based on what assets a villain has to protect and how it's going to defend them in concert with carrying out its activities. Um, I talked about loot, lore, and lives. Um, the other two uh, key basic concepts that I talk about are the different ways to assign value to an asset and... Um, I was going somewhere with this and it just fled. Um, wow. I'm going to have to come back to this. I just completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> all good. Um, yeah, I, I had a point and now it's gone. It's all good. Happens. I'll happens. try to come back to it. But yeah, I mean, oh, no, I remember now. Okay. I remember now. And <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually flabbergasted that I forgot this because the cover illustration is an illustration of this very thing, which is that the three components of every defensive plan are detection, deterrence, and response. 
Those three, hold up the book cover again. Those three little goblins on the cover are Detection, kid with the telescope up there, mm-hmm. Deterrence, pulling up the ladder, and Response, the slingshot. It's all right there. Um, but yeah, you have to have a way to know that a threat is imminent. You have to have measures that will stop or slow that threat from getting into the lair. And if somebody does breach the lair, you have to have a way of making them wish they hadn't. Hmm. Um, and so if, if any of those elements is weak or missing, you don't really have a defensive plan. Um, and that's another thing that I think is is missing from a lot of um, a lot of traditional dungeons, especially the detection component. Um, a lot of dungeons just don't really have guards. Any schmo can just walk right in and start causing trouble. Now nah, you need you need to have some way to tell that somebody's coming who doesn't belong. And then you need to have a way to report that fact back. Because having scouts, having sentries, having guards does no good unless the fact that an intrusion is underway can be communicated back to everyone else who plays a role in stopping that intrusion. Yep. So communication is very, very important. One thing I I always... Even before I researched this book and started thinking this way um it was always a practice of mine when there was a dungeon that was uh pretty substantially populated like there there are there are lots of creatures of one faction and they're scattered throughout the dungeon when one group gets attacked and they think they're losing they always run and tell the next group yep. that this happened so that everyone else is on alert. Now, if the, if the PCs get lucky, they catch up and they stop them from getting back and they've bought themselves a little more time to get further in. But um, when there's an intrusion, word should travel fast. And that's a principle that applies whether or not you're designing layers the way I recommend in the book. Yeah, and I also feel like that aspect of there has to be rapid communication is another point against the uh, the Acme spring-loaded blades. Uh, because right, yeah, what if one of your sentries is running back to report and he trips it and gets cut in half? Yep. Big oops. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't put, you don't put deadly traps on, uh, on, on, transportation routes that your people routinely use in their everyday business that's just a bad idea you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of uh whatever the the equivalent of friendly fire is yeah now where you do use traps like that is in places around the perimeter that are difficult for you to um have guards overlooking if you've got some kind of path toward your lair that's vulnerable and you don't have enough guards to watch for people coming that way, that's where you put a deadly trap. Right. Mm-hmm. Some place where your people have no business being. Yep. 
a lot of I've been thinking about this quite a bit, uh, you know, in, in respect to combat, but also, you know, reading some of this and in, in how to defend your lair has, has got me thinking about this a little bit more. Uh, I like my RPGs to have the persistent threat of death in that a misstep will result or can result in, in depending on the circumstance, in a player character dying essentially due to their own either stupidity or inability to defend against something that they uh, run up against because they made a mistake somewhere. But at the same time, death in RPGs represents a stopping point where, depending on how your tables run, either that's where the game ends for the night for a particular player, or now you have to go through the process of making a new character. So what I have been trying to think about and and trying to put in my RPGs is things that are in a lot of ways worse than death or (laughs) more, uh, I guess, it's failure, but it's failure towards uh, making making life more difficult for, char- for player characters. Failure with a chance of recovery. Yes. But also um, making that recovery difficult. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and I had to devote an entire chapter to prisoner interrogation. Mm. Um, ways of uh, questioning prisoners and gaining valuable information from them. And I want to, I want to talk about, um, rise of Tiamat because I recently finished the, uh, tyranny of dragons arc Horde of the dragon queen and rise of Tiamat with my main group that I've been playing with since 2016, mm-hmm. actually since 2015, but we had a false start and started over in 2016. Um, and so that's when that group began Lost Mine of Fandelver and then went on to Order the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat. Mm. So um, chapter eight in Rise of Tiamat, the Red Wizards chapter, made me so angry that I just completely threw it out. I just, I, I unexisted that chapter from the adventure. For two reasons. Um, one is that I am deeply, deeply opposed to any depiction of torture in a role-playing game. And this chapter just used it as an atmospheric element, which I thought was incredibly tasteless. But the other thing is, you've got this group of Red Wizards and their leader who is supposed to be very, very smart, which is fine, makes perfect sense, they're all wizards, and she's interrogating the party. And it has some lines in there like, um, she's very good at sniffing out lies, you know, she, she doesn't put up with being strung along, blah, blah, blah. Gives you all this stuff about her style. It never tells you what she knows or what she's trying to find out from the PCs. Mm. 
You cannot have an interrogation without knowing both of those things. You have to know how much the questioner knows already and what they don't know and are trying to find out. Without that, you do not have an you do not have an effective interrogation. Those two things are crucial. Um, and so I, I just found that chapter completely unplayable as written, and I didn't consider it worth my effort to fix, and I chucked it. Um, but in my um, in in my chapter on prisoner interrogation. I draw from an actual U.S. Army manual on military intelligence um, and list a whole bunch of, of different approaches that you can use to, um, to get subjects in the mood to answer questions. Yep. And none of them use physical coercion. None of them is about force. Um, and in fact, good cop, bad cop, trope that everyone loves, actually doesn't work that well in practice and is really unworkable in a role-playing game because as the DM, you have to be both the good cop and the bad cop, and that's an acting challenge that, quite frankly, most of us are not up to. Um, but there are a lot of other techniques that you can use, and you can play off how the players are choosing to um, how the players are choosing to role play their character's attitude, um, their degree of fear, their degree of resistance, um, whether or not they are really interested in um, in keeping information away from their questioners or just don't really care, whether there are um, things that they want or care about very badly outside this situation in which they're prisoners and want to get back to. There are techniques for, for playing on all of these things, and I list a whole bunch of them. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can use these things to, um, you know, rather than killing a group of PCs, you can capture them, take them prisoner, and uh, have some fun role-playing a questioning session. But, but... You don't want to do that unless the villain actually has a reason to want to question them. Because, for example, there's some information that they have that the villain doesn't. Right. Yeah, and that's... Again, this is another interesting aspect of the the way that kind of, like, movies have informed how we think about certain scenarios. In the real world, um, mm -hmm. you know, anyone who's ever worked as an interrogator or... Uh, you know, in any kind of field where there's information gathering will tell you that, like, physical torture is not a good way to get actual information because they'll just tell you what you want to hear rather than what's actually yeah. true. Um, right. Narratively speaking, and I think this is what uh, Max and Victor in chat are getting at here. Narratively speaking, torture scenes generally exist to demonstrate... Uh, the the personality traits of the villain or the fortitude of the hero and whether or not you want to use those it's kind of it's really up to uh you know whether or not a gm is comfortable 
using those things. It sounds like you very much don't care for that style of play, which, you know, it's not for everyone. That's, that's fine. Um, but I do like this idea that if you're going to do an interrogation, whether you use the, the tropes of torture or you use kind of more realistic interrogation tactics, there has to be some information that someone's actually looking for. Otherwise, they wouldn't even bother with the interrogation. It, yeah, although I'm going to stand my ground on, on my torture position. I, I really don't think it should be included at all. And um, my my overarching rule on these things is and always has been treat sensitive topics with sensitivity. And um, there, there are some things that just should not be made light of. Mm. Yeah. And I, honestly, like, I, I, I could go either way on it. I've not ever done, like, a graphic torture sequence in my games. I've done interrogations. But, again, I, I feel like that comes down to the, the way that everyone perceives it. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, like, push back on you or anything like that. Um just because it's again, that's that's your that's your preference for it. But I I definitely will agree on you know the the fact that you essentially have to have something of value to offer for an interrogation to happen, mm -hmm. or there has to be something that someone needs to know to to make that a reality. Otherwise, if they capture you and you don't know anything, uh, they're probably just going to execute you. Possibly. Or ransom you, depending on the circumstances. In which case, you have a thrilling escape scene. Instead yep. of trying to break in, you're breaking out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all of that does kind of work towards the idea that there are things out there uh, kind of worse than death. So the, you know, the idea that death is kind of the ultimate failure state in RPGs, I don't think that needs to necessarily be the case. I think it's the final failure state of you failed so much at this point you are going to be dead now but in the interest of keeping the game going and keeping things interesting uh i i like the idea of finding different ways uh for failure to impact the party including being captured and interrogated by the enemy Now, uh, we do have another uh, unrelated question here from Crafty Matt. He very much wants to know... Let me see if I can find it here. Okay. He wants to know if you've expanded on Tucker's Kobolds in uh, How to Defend Your Lair. You know, I actually didn't mention Tucker's Kobolds. I think it's such a... Uh, I think it's such a good example and such a well-known example that I didn't even really need to... Now, I do in the introduction... Um talk about how uh kobold layers are mentioned in volo's guide to monsters and um how volo's guide to monsters description of kobold layers which almost certainly was inspired at least in part by tucker's kobolds uh emphasizes the ways in which kobold layers exploit the advantages that kobolds have um they are small so they build their tunnels small. Larger creatures have to squeeze through them or get stuck. 
Um, they like putting tr they like putting traps in passages that seem like they go somewhere worthwhile but don't. Um, they um, they are very good at working together, and so they um, they have places where they can come at enemies from multiple directions at once. Um, so everything uh, they're they're unlit because kobolds can see in the dark. They, in fact, have sunlight sensitivity. They have no particular reason to want light down there, um, which means not only will intruders have difficulty finding their way around, they'll give themselves away with their light sources. So everything about a kobold lair is advantageous to the kobold and disadvantageous to the intruder. And that, in general, is a good way to approach um, both lair building and combat across the board mm -hmm. every creature wants to maximize its own advantages over its enemies yep yeah absolutely um <clears throat> there, there's this weird and i think the reason for this is video games i think video games have informed a lot of how modern gamers think about you know how how combat works you know we we've all played something like final fantasy where you're in this kind of weird pocket dimension, just kind of exchanging attacks back and forth. But what it comes down to in role-playing games is these tactical elements are present and you have, because everything exists in your imagination, you have more than just the limitations of computer code to work with. So it behooves GMs to focus on how would this monster or how would this monster in their lair create circumstances where the deck is stacked in their favor um, right and, and doing so will create a more rewarding experience for your your game and i there's mm -hmm. not even an argument around that uh in my opinion if it's more challenging than overcoming that challenge will create that high five we did it moment at the table exactly exactly that's what it's about you know the the tougher the struggle the sweeter the victory yep absolutely but no, i I am kind of curious if you think that's something that has had an impact on the way that people view combat, especially, I think the the generation before mine uh, was very influenced by kind of CRPGs in the Final Fantasy series when it comes to the way that combat works in RPGs. Do you, would you agree with that or you know, what are kind of your thoughts on that as far as... I don't really know because I'm from the generation before the generation before that. Gotcha. So, <laughs> you know, my my experience, my first experience with uh, RPG combat was in Ultima 4. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're going way back here. Um, I think that... Well, I definitely think that that movie tropes have a lot of influence, regardless of generation. Yep. Um, television tropes, like you know, in movies and TV, how often does somebody take cover? Um, actually, in in movies and TVs, they probably do it more than they do in video games. I remember playing Overwatch, and my God, trying to get people to take cover. Or look up. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, but I do think that people definitely, I do think that, that most players definitely need some coaching or prompting, um, to get them to that that first point where they're realizing um oh man the monster or the villain is not going to play nice they are going to use elements of the surroundings against me they're gonna you know wait wait what he could hide behind that oh man i didn't even think about that you know when 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 the monster or the villain breaks out their first unfair trick you know you get that sudden moment you know where players eyes get a little bit wider and they're like oh you know they realize that they have to step it up a little bit too in order to compete um and i do like to see everyone competing on that slightly higher plane where you know You've got everything around you. Find a way to use it. Yep. You've got features. Find a way to combine them. Find a way to synergize. You've got teammates. You've got allies. Um, work together. Your your effect on each other is multiplicative. It's not just additive. You can you can do some great stuff if you think about how to do great stuff together. Mm-hmm. And you know, actually, that when we when I was talking about live to tell the tale and the ways I'd like to improve it. Um, I would definitely like to add a chapter to that on um, how to how to work better as a group, how to uh, look for ways to synergize as a party. Um, because I think party synergy not only dramatically increases the effectiveness of everyone in the party, it gives you this bonding experience. You know, it, it it's. It's not just, uh, hey, I did this and you did that. It's we did a thing together and, you know, it's worth high-fiving over. And um, and the more different ways you can, uh, you can find to enhance the abilities of your companions in the party, mm-hmm. um, you know, the more you really are going to become a, an adventuring group. And not just a handful of adventurers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There there are definitely ways, uh, especially in 5e, that classes can synergize with each other and make each mm-hmm. other kind of, you know, better. That mm-hmm. I think a lot of players forget because you end up with, uh, you know, the wizard wants to cast their fireball, uh, the, you know, the warlock wants to do their eldritch blast, and so... A lot of times it's not thinking about how can I, uh, you know, synergize with my team members and, uh, you know, create a tactical environment where we're going to come out on top. It's how can I set myself up where I can fireball and deal massive amounts of damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think kind of realigning player expectations is uh, a valuable thing to do. And I actually, on that subject, want to circle back all the way to the beginning of our conversation here, mm-hmm. the the letters that you got talking about TPKs <laughs> that resulted yep. from your book. 
I know there there are some GMs out there who wear TPKs like a badge of honor. Like I really stuck it to them this time. But at the same time, um I also think a lot of those TPKs might have just been a result of the shock of we're doing things differently now. Uh, so do you think, even though that's not the goal, even though this isn't designed, this or any of your other books are not designed to be TPK manuals, do you see how like a TPK could be the first, essentially like their first brush with these tactics might result in something catastrophic like that just because they don't know how to think about it right? Well, yeah, possibly. Um, but to me, that's not fun. Um, I, I am my player's biggest fan. I, I always root for the PCs. And when, when I get a TPK, and it has happened a couple of times, to me, that's a failure on my part. It's a disappointment. I threw the Frisbee out of their reach. I didn't throw the frisbee at that line between where they could reach it by working at working at it and where they couldn't, you know. I want to I want to throw it just inside that line. I want them to work for it, but in the end to catch it. So if I accidentally killed them all, that means I didn't calibrate the experience right. Cuz that's not what I was trying to accomplish. Um it means that, you know, I maybe I maybe I should have only thrown two ghasts at them instead of three, um, or maybe I should have just stuck with only one. Um, I, I I really don't like to do that because it is a big downer for most players to have their PCs die, and when you're doing that to the whole group at once, um, you know that, that it would not be fun for me. And it wouldn't be fun for the players I did it to. Um, and, uh, you know, that actually happened in my Curse of Strahd campaign. Um, they um, they were in the, uh, the Death House. I hope I'm not spoiling too much for anyone here. Um, and uh, one of the players triggered an attack by a bunch of shadows, one per player, one per PC, rather. And uh, they got wiped. And part of it was them um, not realizing that they needed to just get out of there. Like, they actually tried to stand and fight it, and they couldn't do it. But they had all just created... They were level two. And, you know, I think it's, I almost think it's worse to kill a player at level two or level three than at level one. Because at level two, by level two and three, they've had time to get attached to the character. Um, level one, eh, big deal. Go back to the drawing board. But level two and three, like, they had hopes for this these characters. They were going somewhere with them. And that's just ended. And so I... I ended up like retconning that into you had this horrible vision of what would happen if you did this hmm. <laughs> and and went on from there um because they had five good interesting characters and i didn't want to make them throw those out and do it all over again um so um yeah i i uh i don't see a tpk as a badge of honor um i see it as a dm screw up 
And um, now that's not the same as one character dying. I'm not at all afraid to have one character die because one character can potentially be brought back. Or if the uh, if the player feels like it, they can say, you know what, that's okay. I can let go of them. I can create somebody new. Um, it's more in their hands. It's a lot more. It, it that's a lot more workable than the entire party dying. Mm-hmm. And um, and this, by the same token, I don't really mind what it happens to me. Um, my friend Julian, whom I mentioned in the introduction to the monsters, know what they're doing. Um, was running a campaign, and I had what I thought was a pretty cool character. I had an uh, Aladrin Battlemaster fighter um, who was actually from the Feywild, and I was playing him as this kind of fish-out-of-water character because um, the material world made no sense to him. Um, like, just simple things like the fact that day and night go back and forth regularly just drove him nuts to him it was it was just this incessant repetition like someone banging on a pot um drove him crazy um so he got to level three where his season would change every time he took a long rest and he was in the summer season he was feeling his oats he was always running to the front you know ready to fight at a moment's notice and he ran up on something that took the top half of his head off that was a one-hit kill, instant death. And Julian was like, oh, God, man, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you know what? Wisdom was his dump stat, and I knew the job was dangerous when I took it. And uh, and and I, you know, maybe someday I'll bring Laurenar back for something else in some other setting, use that character again, because I'm not done exploring him. But... As far as that particular game was concerned, you know what? It's all right. It's all in the game. And um, and my next character was a Kenku druid who became a druid because he figured by learning the ways of other creatures, he could regain the ability to fly. And that's pretty cool, too. I actually... I, I don't agree necessarily with the idea that a TPK is a failing on the GM's part. I think sometimes it can be, especially if you uh, if you overestimate what you're throwing at your players. But I think in some cases it can be because of a failing on the player's part. And honestly, uh, I, I see retreat as always a viable option Mm-hmm. in combat so the the fact that that's always present i i think in that case uh now you want to blame you want to blame video games for something i think you can blame video games for making people think that every encounter is always going to be calibrated so that they can succeed right um and and encouraging the idea that you can all you can do this you can do this it's within your reach um you don't need to run away no one ever runs away in video games, except, I don't know, maybe Dark Souls sometimes. Um, but generally speaking, no one ever runs away in video games because there's no reason to. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think 
And and also there are mechanics in 5e that make running away seem very undesirable, but sometimes you just got to do it anyway. Um it, it's it is it is better to run than to die. Yeah, and Honestly, I think if you find yourself in that situation, because you can, as a GM, you can go back to the drawing board all you want and think about, well, how could I have done something differently here uh, if you want to avoid a TPK? But at the end of the day, sometimes, one, the dice just don't go the way that you hope they'll go. Uh, even if you are rooting for the players, if, if the dice aren't in their favor and the dice are in your favor, uh, that's just, you know, that's the way... The, the dice rolled on that night. You can't do anything about that. And then the other thing is with retreat being always on the table, even if you did accidentally, uh, you know, create something that's a little bit beyond what the players are technically capable of, they do have the option to run away. And they there are other tactical options that might result in them kind of coming out on top if they do want to stand their ground. So at the end of the day... I don't think uh, GMs should take the blame for a TPK on themselves or see it as a failing uh, of their preparation. In the case that, you know, you did something that's just straight up unfair to your players, uh, after they retreat, you can go, sorry guys, that was my bad, if if you feel Um, like you should. But uh, I guess I would say... um, I would I would I would see a TPK as a failing on my part if I had meant the encounter to be balanced and it turned out not to be. Um now if I were deliberately throwing something at my players that I knew they couldn't handle and that was supposed to be a demonstration of this is way above your pay grade. That you shouldn't even attempt this, um, and they don't take the hint and they attempt it anyway. I mean, yeah, in a situation like that, it's 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 the logical consequence of their choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but but generally, my attitude is I don't I don't want to kill them all. I don't even want a bad roll to kill them all. Um, because I'm a fan of their stories and I want those stories to go on. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't feel good about a TPK in that situation. Yeah. And I, I understand that. And I, again, I think what it comes down to is a lot of what you're doing is, you, you know, you're running games in 5e. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I don't do a lot of 5e anymore. I've, done a ton of 5e in the past i know 5e very much emphasizes encounter balance a lot of the games that i run nowadays uh, especially something like ose or dungeon crawl classics uh when it mentions encounter balance in the manual it says don't worry about this there's just there, <laughs> there are if you're in an orc encampment there's 30 orcs just cuz that's yeah. how many orcs there are going to be and so i i do think it comes down to what game you're playing and what that game emphasizes what that game's built around mm-hmm. um but at the end of the day no matter what system you're playing i always see retreat as a viable option for the players so i again i 
I think this just comes down to we're we're almost talking in two different uh, game vernaculars in a lot of cases. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, in um, I, I actually address this partly in How to Defend Your Lair, getting back to the book, um, because one of the one of the tenets of of this kind of defense is massing overwhelming combat power along the uh, most probable path of approach. If somebody's coming at you, they are most likely going to come from a certain direction, and you want to pile just a ridiculous amount of defense on that direction. Now, you want to be able to move it as necessary if somebody comes from a different direction, but if if it's overwhelmingly likely that somebody's going to attack from one direction, you want to put like 80% of your response force in that direction. And in 5e terms, that is always going to result in an encounter that is not only deadly by DMG guidelines, but like beyond deadly, super deadly, half of your day's entire uh, XP budget deadly. I'm not saying don't do this. What I am saying is, um, number one, when your players are on their way in, to avoid just putting them into a, a wood chipper for no good reason. Hmm. Number one, make sure that the other encounters going in don't amount to more than either one medium encounter or two easy encounters. So in other words, once you get inside a lair, you're basically going to have no opportunity to rest. Yeah. Not if the villain is doing its job. So what that means is you cannot have a six-encounter day. You can really only have like a four-encounter day. Otherwise, people are going to run out of their resources. And, um, and three of those encounters are one encounter. Mm-hmm. So that means that that everything else has to be just chip damage, nothing more. Um, they need to be they need to be able to go through those encounters relatively easily, so that they are not completely wrecked by the one encounter that turns out to be ridiculously hard. And what's even better is if they play it smart enough, do a little reconnaissance, and figure out, oh heck, we can't go this way. This this way is going to be way too much for us. Maybe it's not actually way too much, but it sure looks that way, and that's the point. It's, it's not just response, it's also deterrence. And they look for another way in. And, and role-playing gamers are creative, and they'll find that other way in. They just need to work for it. Again, it's um, you're throwing the frisbee where they can catch it, but they got to work to catch it, and that's going to make the success more satisfying. Mm-hmm. I uh, I at GameholeCon recently, I ran several Bus My Lair events, and one of them was the Lich's Crypt. And I'm not going to spoil the Lich's Crypt because I'm I'm kind of proud of some of the ridiculously devious stuff that's in there. It's a lich, after all. But there is one approach path 
it is that encounter. It is that super deadly encounter. Um, and it was epic. It was truly epic. At one point, the uh, uh, the party wizard went down with zero hit points, failed two death saves. Third death save, rolled a natural 20 and popped back up with one hit point and, and ended up like casting a spell that won the encounter. Mm-hmm. So um, it was just a beautiful nail biter of a thing. Yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff at con games that really makes for a, a fun experience when you have that, oh, we were mm-hmm. about to, we were all about to die and then suddenly we were able to turn it around at the last minute. Um, to, to respond to something you said earlier, and this will have to be one of the last things we discuss uh, just because mm-hmm. we're, we're running up on time here. Um, in those circumstances where you have that layer that's full of kind of amassed military might, uh, this is another thing where I think people should default to the uh, examples that were given in fantasy novels or in movies and stuff. Uh, scouting your enemies absolutely before absolutely going in and seeing kind of where troops are deployed and devising ways to draw you know a massive force to to one particular area to leave your path clear i think stuff like that it really behooves the players to put effort and energy into that over just seeing all right how many of these guys can we take head on in a fight uh because that absolutely you're 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 playing smarter at that point and when it comes to a small group of in some cases potentially even underpowered characters going up against the you know the mass of a full garrison you have to fight smarter not harder absolutely absolutely um and i hope that any players who read how to defend your lair um come away from it with a uh with an a new appreciation of reconnaissance because reconnaissance is hugely important, not just for the attacker, but also not just for the defender, but also for the attacker. And, uh, um, when I did the, uh, game Holcon bust my layers, I provided a set of pregens, um, who I just created at different levels. So like the exact same stable of characters at, at levels, 7, 10, 13, and 20, depending on the uh, the lair that they were running. And so for the Lich, of course, that was a level 20 group. Um, so there were eight characters. The party could choose up to five. And uh, one of them was a uh, character I created. Um, I created this character to be the ultimate reconnaissance scout. Um his name is Muffled Bell. He's a tabaxi inquisitive rogue. Um, with, uh, let's see, how did I design him? He's got uh, the observant feet. And uh, I think I gave him the mobile feet too. Yeah, observant, mobile, and skulker. Just absolutely ridiculous passive perception and investigation. Um expertise in investigation perception and stealth um and because he's a tabaxi um you know if uh if somebody spots him he can use that first turn to double his movement and get out of there um just a lot of fun as a character 
Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to have him out there to encourage people to think about reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, the uh, um, in my opinion, anyone anyone out there who's thinking about doing this, I think the inquisitive makes a better reconnaissance scout than the scout. If you're thinking about creating a rogue to be your scout, consider making them an inquisitive. Scouts are very good for um, helping lead an ambush. But if you if you really want to see every possible danger, go inquisitive. Absolutely. Well, now that we are uh, kind of at the end of our time here, um, I want to give everyone the chance to find out where they can get a hold of uh, both this book, How to Defend Your Lair, and the other books that you've written. So, uh, as always, I'm going to turn over these last few minutes to you to uh, tell everyone uh, where they can find your stuff and uh, and why they should uh, <laughs> pick up your, your books, which I think we've established here are, are pretty good resources. Thank you. Um, Saga Press is a trade publisher, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, so you can buy them at your local independent bookstore, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. They are uh, available in ebook formats. All except Live to Tell the Tale are available in audiobook formats um, on Libro.fm or Audible. And... um, if you want to order them from your friendly local game store, uh, ACD Distribution carries them. And um, if uh, your game store doesn't work with ACD, then uh, they can order it wholesale from Simon & Schuster Distribution. Uh, links to all of those booksellers are on my personal website, spyandowl.com. Awesome. All right. Well, Keith, thank you once again for coming on the show. Uh, this was a great conversation. It's always great to uh, to talk with you about these things, even uh, on the points where we uh, disagree a little bit. Uh, but thank you again for coming on. This This is a great book, and I'm, I'm glad that we had the chance to talk about this. Thank you again for inviting me. Awesome. All right, guys. Uh, that is it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. Next week... Uh, I have been putting myself through a great amount of torture for next week's episode because in anticipation of the episode, I have watched every single D&D branded movie that has been released. Oh. Um, and they're not good. They're not even entertainingly bad. They're just not good. Has anyway. there been more than one before the current one? Yeah, there was one in 2000. There was a direct-to-video sequel uh, in 2004. I didn't know there was a sequel. (laughs) There was another one that came out just in the UK called The Book of Vile Darkness uh, (laughs) that came out in like 2005 or 2006. And then there was uh, a, I think, direct-to-Amazon Prime animated adaptation of Dragonlance. Wow. And none of them are good. But uh, Ben from the BS Bargain Ben podcast is going to be on. Uh, anyone uh, not familiar with BS Bargain Ben, they talk about awful movies, which is why they made me watch all of those awful D&D movies. 
and we'll be talking about all of them. We'll also be talking about uh, kind of the upcoming D&D movie. I'm not optimistic, but I'm sure Ben will have uh, his own thoughts and his own take to share with you guys. And we'll talk a little bit about what makes kind of a D&D type story work on the big screen. So big talk all about movies, all about gaming uh, next week and, and how they kind of mesh together. So until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.